names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. Welcome to Escaping Society, um, where we hope to share tips, explore topics, connect, provoke, offend, and question. My name is Gumby. I'm Teresa. And we are in the occupied lands of the Cherokee and the Black Bear, um, what we've been uh, taught to call Wilson's Creek. So hopefully we are audible over this big, magnificent, beautiful river. I'm rushing beside of us, and we're here in the North Carolina mountains and feeling so lucky to be here. Um, this is episode 56, Native Literacy, Mother. And we want to discuss ecology. Um, as any of our listeners know, I am definitely not a big fan of science, but this is mostly going to be from a scientific, physical point of view. Um, and let me just preface everything we're about to say with... Um, the knowledge that I, or, or what am I trying to say? The statement that I am an animist. I believe everything speaks, everything is sentient, and it is alive. So a lot of these, uh, these, these topics, these ways of looking at things that I've gotten from science, I don't think of as the whole truth, but I still have found them useful. They help me to look deeper and to understand a little bit more than if I didn't use them. But uh, they're not the whole story. So... Ecology, the ecological question is why? For instance, um, when you start studying nature, um, you might look at a tree and you identify it. And for a lot of people, that's kind of the end of the story. Okay, that's a white oak. Maybe you learn the, the Latin name, that's Quercus alba. Now you're feeling really smart. Um, and maybe you go further, you learn some of the uses of it. You learn you can eat the acorns and how to process them so they're edible and nutritious. You learn maybe the medicinal uh, properties of the tannic acids in, the, in the, the, the oak tree. Ecology um, pushes us to ask why. Why is this oak tree growing here? Why does its fruit come in the shape of an acorn? Why is it full of tannic acids? And that is one of my favorite questions. Why? And I find it so interesting that so many little kids, you know, that's that's kind of a uh, sort of a joke with parents. As a little kid, that's one of their favorite questions. Why? You know, and eventually a parent in exasperation will throw up their hands and say, because I said so. <laughs> and it's so interesting. If you keep asking why, no matter what the topic, if you think maybe you're an auto mechanic and you think you know cars really well, but if somebody starts asking why, it always, always ends in I don't know. And to me, that is a really provocative, profound, um, probing question. Oh, there's a hummingbird over there. What's that? There's a hummingbird over there underneath that big rock. Oh, yeah. I think it just flew away. Yep, just got visited by a hummingbird. Okay, so um, I was so interested in ecology. I wanted to learn about these connections. You know, I wanted to learn about the forest as an entity. So I started getting books 
and uh, checking them out from the library. And I was really bummed to find that uh, most of the books I found and the information I could find on ecology, well, first of all, was just boring as hell. I mean, if you had a love of nature and these ecology books were your only window into to developing that relationship further, it'd probably turn you off. <laughs> I mean, I, I make myself finish a book because I feel like even if I hate the book, there's knowledge to be gained. Sometimes I've finished a book, felt like there was no value in it, only to discover a couple years later that there's something that I found really interesting that was in that book. And I, it took me a couple years of, uh, of it percolating in my mind for me to realize it. And that one thing was worth reading the book. Now, with that said, some of these ecology books I've gotten, I've had to put them down. I've had to quit them. And that, that's a big deal for me. I mean, they were just trash, garbage. And I'm talking about some mainstream ecology books that are getting taught in college. Um, one of the things I really hate about them is how exploitative they are. These are books that get taught in courses that have names like Forest Management. You know, they're how to manage our resources, how to keep them economically profitable, how to um, continue to make them sustainable, but not so much for their intrinsic value. They might have a little thing in the preface or something about how beautiful nature is, but the whole rest of it is crunching numbers, making bar graphs, really uh, applying this lens of math, of cold science, of abstract things that I don't feel like really deepens our understanding whatsoever. Um, to me, when we say ecology, it's another way of saying God. Ecology is the big picture. It's if you take all these things, all these species, all these entities of nature, including the ones we usually don't think of as in nature, like from civilization, for instance, and you put them all together, what's that bigger picture? And I love a name that uh, certain native peoples have used, um, whatever their, how they say it in their language, but it, it often translates to something like the spirit that moves in all things. I think that is the essence of ecology. It's about relationships. It's about connection. I remember taking a class with uh, Tom Brown Jr. at the Tracking Wilderness and, oh, I forgot, Tracking Nature and Wilderness Survival School. Therese always makes fun of me for being able to remember that long name. Um, I think it was a scout class. And he was teaching us that some of the native scouts, the Apache in particular, believed in these, I'm going to use the word entity, but I don't know if that's really accurate, but he called them keepers. They were sort of lines of energy. They were the energy, the entity, the presence between things. For instance, Teresa is sitting right beside me right now. There is a keeper between us. Teresa has her own personality, her own being. I have my own being. But together, we're more than the sum of our parts. Something else happens there. That's the presence of the keeper. And the scouts were said to be able to not only see the keeper and understand the keeper, but because they had such a deep understanding of the keeper to be able to use the keeper. And it could lead them to help them develop Abilities like invisibility, to be able to stand right beside you and not be seen, to be able to leave a psychic message for another scout behind them where that scout could walk and suddenly have a thought descend upon them like, oh, there's people over there. Weird abilities. And this was supposed to be based on these keepers. 
And to me, I think these keepers are also a deeper part of this ecology. To begin to see the connections, that web of life, that, that spirit that moves in all things. It, it to me, is the opposite of this uh, objectification we're taught in our culture. The taxonomy. Oh, let me yeah. add something. Okay, so I've been trying to read this uh, Peterson Field Guide for Eastern Forests. And it's actually, Gumby suggested reading it because it does talk about ecology in a way that's a little bit more palatable. It's not talking so much about how we can utilize the land, but it's talking about those relationships. And I just found it to be, so far I'm learning about all the different communities um, throughout the eastern United States and just how the the details, the intricacy of all the relationships from the birds and mammals to the soil type and the types of trees that grow and things like the the rainfall, the chance that it might um, have a fire in the forest. Everything is so beautifully intricate and connected. And that just, I mean, it just amazes me. Every time I, I read about a different community um, in ecology, it's, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yep. And one of our goals here is to hopefully give you some things to look for, some uh, different ways to try to go out in your yard, even from your living room window or out in the forest if you got a favorite spot, and just to try to practice a different understanding of the forest as a whole, as an entity. Our beloved Mother Earth, Gaia, um, that, that, that presence that not only is our mother that, that gave us everything we need to live, but it's also us. Let's not forget that when we talk about ecology and Mother Earth, we are talking about ourselves as well. So, and before we get started, I want to just give a quick nod to Deep Ecology. Um, this is developed by, shit, I can't remember where he's from. I think he's Swedish, but his name's Arne Ness. But if you look up Deep Ecology, you'll find this guy's name really quick. He's a hell of a naturalist. And uh, I love his take on ecology because I think he started realizing you know, getting really turned off and disgusted with this objectifying, exploitative, mainstream ecology. So he developed deep ecology. And the premise of that is what if we aren't in charge? What if the question is not how best to manage the landscape, but what if we aren't the managers at all? And so deep ecology takes that perspective. Let's just erase the whole anthropomorphic, we're the center of the universe, this is here for us to either take care of or destroy, what if it's not here for us at all? What if we're just one of the many creatures participating in this beautiful unfolding life? And what kind of ecology, what kind of connection stems from that? So check out Deep Ecology. So to get started, um, I found this helpful, and this came from Tom Wessel's book, I'm going to recommend two books here. One was the one Teresa mentioned, Peterson Field Guide to Eastern Forest. And the other one is Tom Wessel's Reading the Forested Landscape, A Natural History of New England. We're not in New England, but so much of what's written in this book translates to wherever you are in the world. Some of it doesn't, but it's a remarkable book. Those two books, to me, are the best two books I've found on ecology. He, oh, I was going to ask you... Um, Reading the Forested Landscape by Tom Wessels, he was, I think, in part influenced by that May Teilgard Watts that wrote The Forested Landscape or something like that, and you read that. What did you think about that Forested Landscape book? 
honestly, I found it a little boring and a little dry, but also in that book um, that you just mentioned, there was some interesting stuff in there. So, you know, if somebody asked me, is there anything you'd recommend further, I might mention that book. But, uh, yeah, I don't put it to me in the same category as reading The Forested Landscape and Eastern Forest. But Wessels, he says there are three main physical factors that determine the forest type around you. He says one of the most important is substrate. Now, we're talking about that bedrock way down there beneath us. You know, you got all these high pressures, all this volcanic activity, all that magma. So, you know, this shapes this, this bedrock, and the bedrock starts breaking down until it, it forms our substrate. And what that substrate is, is a huge factor in determining what grows there. The, like, the, 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 the substrate can range from, let's say, sandy, which are the biggest particles, to clay, which are the smallest. And sand soil tends to make areas really xeric or dry. Whereas, um, what am I trying to say? The clay can really lend itself to hydric or wet soil. And totally different things will grow there. Yeah, I was going to say, we live in, uh, in North Carolina. We are generally in the central part, and they have a lot more clay um, and going towards the east, I believe there's more clay and it's kind of, it kind of reminds me of a terracotta pot. Like it will hold water. There'll be indentations in the clay and it'll just hold water for a really long time versus the sand that the water just kind of drains out. Yeah. Yeah. So get down there and take a handful of soil. And of course, use all your senses, feel it, smell it. Um, but mainly pay attention to these three factors. Is it, what color is it for one thing? You know, is it really dark? Is it light? Beautiful red color? What's the texture? Does it feel grainy and sandy? Does it feel sticky and muddy? And how wet is it? When you squeeze it, can you squeeze water out of it? Or does it feel like it hasn't seen water in centuries? <laughs> you know, all these things help determine what grows there. And one of the best soils, one of the richest soils, is what we call loam. And loam is a mixture you know, you've got some sand particles, clay particles, everything in between. That's what loam means. It's a mixture of all of them. It's a really nice balance. So when you see really rich forests, like we're around the, uh, the Appalachian Cove Forest, for instance, which is famously rich and fertile and diverse, I bet when we dig into the soil there, we find loam. We find that rich black soil. So check out the soil, the substrate. The next determining factor is topography. And by topography... Of course, I mean the lay of the land, and specifically the steepness and direction of the slopes. So I remember I went on a wildflower hike um, several years ago, and I was starting to pay attention to this. You know, the instructor was showing all the flowers and everything, but I was also looking at topography because I was starting to read this in books and trying to practice, like, telling my directions. The sun rises in the east. It leans towards the south high in the south in the summer, really low in the south in the winter, and it sets in the west. This is for the northern hemisphere. If you're listening to this in Australia, I'm not sure how it works down there, but <laughs> some of that's different. I was expecting all the wildflowers and everything to be facing the sun, but they were on the north slopes, and that was a big surprise to me. They actually wanted protection from the sun, and that's where you'd see all the plant diversity, all the beautiful wildflowers. And then when you encounter a south-facing slope, it would be relatively barren. It'd be green, but you wouldn't see all those spring ephemerals, those wildflowers. 
And as far as the elevation, I really tuned into that when we started living in our van. You know, when it would get too hot down where we are around the Piedmont of North Carolina. And, um, you know, we'd climb an elevation. And even here, like around the Blue Ridge Parkway and the Great Smoky Mountains, just slight changes in elevation. Like I'm talking 15 minutes, maybe 10 minutes drive. We'll see the temperatures start rising or dropping depending on elevation. And when you climb an elevation, like you're going to the mountains, it's the same as heading north. So we run into species here high in the mountains that we would not be able to find unless we went up to sometimes the northern parts of New England. So topography is a huge determining factor. Substrate, topography. And remember, there's three. Now, one of the things I find neat about topography is it reminds me that everything is in motion. We're beside this river now, and it's obviously in motion. It's moving, it's splashing, it's making all that sound you hear in the background, and hopefully I'm not shouting in your ear trying to talk over it. But also the land, just the way the river is flowing, is flowing. It's in motion. But it's so slow that we mistake it for, what would I say, uh, immobility just being static and not moving. But that's not the truth. Everything is in motion. These plants here that we distinguish from the animals, animals, animated, moving. The plants are also moving. They just move so slow that we assume that, that we imagine they're not. Ooh, we just were on the Blue Ridge Parkway and took pictures of this amazing tree. <laughs> and it looked like the branches were reaching down this really steep slope. I think, Gumby, you're going to post the pictures. Or you Already have. did. Um, on our Facebook page, Escaping Society. But yeah, talk about being in motion. I mean, it's a tree, so it's moving so slow that we we can't really perceive it unless we're there when it falls. But it just, that tree evoked so much motion just from how it was. And, and that was just, it just popped into my mind when you said that. Yeah, I took like 32 pictures of this tree. We may have been high, <laughs> um, but it is such a, a tree and I've already posted the album on our Escaping Society uh, Facebook page so check it out. It's called This Fucking Tree and This Fucking Tree or That Fucking Tree? This Fucking Tree oh. and yeah, it's amazing but, you know, this motion, this land in motion, you know, these continents crashing into each other you got Pangea and then after that separated, that supercontinent they crashed together again, right? And what was the name of that? Do you remember? I don't remember the order of it, but I think there was, <laughs> I really am rusty at this. I think there was a supercontinent called Laurentia or something, or Laurasia or something like that. Yeah, started with an L. Yeah, so apparently Africa broke off from the, the supercontinent, floated away, only to come back. And like a big truck collision crashed right into, you know, our area right here in North Carolina. And so we're sitting in this, basically a huge train wreck this big continental crash that pushed up these mountains the oldest mountains in the world by the way not to brag but uh oh take that Derek Jensen <laughs> but there I mean so topography you know it's all these collisions these crashes that are happening so slowly that they don't seem dramatic to our our puny little short human lives but they are profound and, of course, that affects the substrate, too, because with the, within the, uh, the substrate that's being pushed up, you've got the clay particles, like, sinking to the creek, which if you, if you, if you ever want to find clay, go downhill, like if you're making pottery. 
And, um, you know, they all blend together and change each other. And finally, the last of the three. We got substrate, we got topography. Um, oh, and one more thing about the topography. It also dictates the water, you know, where the water flows. And as we talked about in our podcast, Lifeblood, we talked a lot about water. This is a hugely important thing to tune into when you're trying to understand the forest. These are the veins of the forest. If you want to know, get a good guide to the health of the overall forest, go to the water. Anything bad is going to get washed into that water. Learn the life in the water. Even something as simple as frog songs can give you an indicator of some measure of health. If you want to look closer, start looking under rocks at the little water quality indicators, all the tiny little insects and uh, baby insects that are are growing there that are really sensitive, and if there's some sickness in the water, they'll die. There'll be an absence of them. So, again, check out Lifeblood, one of our uh, other episodes for more about water. But the water helps shape the topography, and the topography helps shape the water. So that's a beautiful ecological relationship right there between the lay of the land and the water. And it affects everything. Now the last one, the last of the three factors that determine the composition of the forest, is kind of the most fun one. It's the one that most people spend the most time studying. And it's disturbance. And by disturbance, we mean anything that causes a a disruption resulting in lower rates of photosynthesis, which of course photosynthesis supports all the rest of the life, and less ability to hold nutrients. Now that sounds really bad, a lowered rate of photosynthesis and less ability to hold nutrients, but some disturbance is natural. It, it creates a cycle, it creates a renewing. So in the process of that healing, all kinds of wonderful things happen that our species are dependent on. There are six main types of disturbance. And I'll start with the ones that have the least to do with humans first. One type of disturbance that you'll run into in the forest all the time is blowdowns. Ever since the sun's been shining on our atmosphere, it's been stirring up that air and it's been causing what we've, we call wind. And um, sometimes that wind gets really strong in storms and tornadoes and hurricanes. And there's all kinds of cool things you can read uh, by reading the wind. Um, One of the things about the Peterson Field Guide to Eastern Forests is it helps you understand what's happening in the forest right now. And Tom Wessel's book, Reading the Forested Landscape, helps you read the history as if an animal had passed there. What happened before? Why, there's that question again, does this look the way it does? Um, And he talks a lot about how to interpret blowdowns, like right down to which hurricane at what season came through to cause the blowdowns you're observing. But even a small blowdown can knock down a single tree. We talked about this in one of our uh, recent um, episodes when we talked about this beech tree that fell. We've seen a blowdown, a big tree fall, and it opens up what's called a forest gap. And that starts the stages of succession over again. It opens up the sunlight. It creates, because the tree fell, a gap where there's a little less photosynthesis, um, a little less ability to hold nutrients, But that actually favors plants that have adapted to this occasional thing. There are seeds waiting for this disturbance. And once that disturbance is caused, they're activated. They start growing. And all kinds of plants that are unique to that disturbance, even in the space of one tree falling, you can find things there. So from a survivalist perspective, if you're looking for, like, plants to eat, plants to put in your salad, these disturbances are crucial. You won't find many of them in a 
full-grown, climax, healthy forest. You need that occasional disturbance. Another huge factor of the six uh, disturbances I'm going to mention is Castor canadensis, the beaver. The largest rodent in North America, possibly the world. I'm not sure about that. Um, But aside from us, this is the only other animal that makes the list. The beaver is an incredible creature, an entity that reshapes a whole ecosystem to suit its needs. And it somehow does that, that's still within the bounds of following the, the rules of ecology, that doesn't destroy the whole planet, that doesn't threaten the future of its own young. And yet, it makes profound changes. I might even call a beaver like maybe the original wild tender. It is shaping the land. It's not just leaving it as a primeval forest. It's changing the whole landscape, but it works. And so these beavers, as they're shaping the land, they'll build a dam and they'll flood an entire area. So suddenly these plants that can't exist in a swamp, they die. And the beavers go even further than that. They girdle trees. They chew the bark around certain trees, not just for food, They have the trees that they cut down for food and take the cambium layer, the inner bark. They have trees that they cut down to build their dams, but they have other trees that they cut just to kill them. So they can get rid of those trees to encourage the trees that they favor, like willow. Um, I think I remember reading in Tom Wessel's book that beaver hell would be a dry, piney forest full of evergreens. Beaver heaven would be a lush, wet place, partly flooded, full of willows, um, things like that, maybe cottonwoods. But the beaver will shape that. So it's a huge disturbance. And as the dams, as they abandon the dams and they leak, then the river returns and the succession starts over. You, you that, that flooded area becomes a wet meadow and on and on through the stages of succession, which we'll uh, talk about a little bit later. Number three is fire. Fire has been a natural part of the landscape since the beginning, since there were creatures colonizing the land, the first lichens, the first fungus, the first plants, the first insects, the anurans, the amphibians. We used to have a lot more volcanic activity. We still have volcanic activity. That's a source of fire. A more frequent source of fire is lightning. Fire is so frequent on the landscape that there's whole ecosystems dependent on it that wouldn't exist like grasslands if it wasn't for occasional fire. There's whole species, like certain kinds of pine, that cannot reproduce, they can't germinate without fire. We come in, and by we I mean our culture, the taker culture, and we run into some native people, some indigenous people, and I'm not sure how true this is in Europe, but I know the history more of this continent, and many of the indigenous people were using fire. They were encouraging fire. They understood that fire created a landscape good for the animals that lived here and good for themselves. Now, one of my questions that I don't know if there's an answer to is when they started doing these control burns, were they like the beaver? Did they actually try to get rid of certain creatures that didn't want that much fire? I don't know. But whatever they developed to do, it worked by the time we got here, we being the white culture. But we didn't understand what they were doing. So we thought they were just a bunch of crazy, half-naked savages running around that didn't even know how to create a productive farm and that were setting fires to their own land. I mean, just insane people. So this led to a culture, part of the justification of taking this land to make it more useful for everybody, including the indigenous people, was the thinking back then. 
to teach them agriculture like sane people would use the land for, which of course we now know kills soil. Agriculture eventually depletes the soil and the only way to keep it nourishing plants where we can use it for agriculture is to bring in biomass and nutrients from outside places and even gasoline to replenish the soil in a very artificial um, kind of sick way. So this fire led to a culture of repression of fire. Old Smokey the Bear, only you can prevent forest fires. I got raised on that shit, as anybody my age probably did. Only now are people starting to rethink that more. Because what happened is when you have occasional fires, they don't burn that hot. There's only a certain level of debris, a certain level of things that are going to burn. So the fire comes through, it does its thing, the the plants that germinate in fire do their thing. It's a beautiful process. It makes a land that like has less of the things that actually we don't want often, like ticks. You know, these ticks are in response to an out of balance landscape, and ticks are a big, big factor here in North Carolina. Um, we're seeing them more in the mountains as well, which is really depressing. But this fire. Because it got suppressed, things would pile up. And now, when fire eventually broke out, like it's always going to break out eventually because you can't control every lightning strike, bam, you've got a major fire. So the little light fires would not kill the big trees. They had grown strong enough with thick enough bark, evolved to withstand occasional fires, this disturbance. Now these big fires, they might kill a big tree. They do some serious damage to a landscape. So... There's fire, and that is a major disturbance. Yeah, and I was just reading about. I'm not an. I mean, I'm not an expert in really anything. But neither one of us are experts in anything. There are trees, like you mentioned, that are. They have evolved to work in tandem with these naturally occurring fires, and so there are certain pines. I think one I was reading about was jack pine that's even more reliant on fire to help with the seed dispersal, uh, opening up the cones, than the longleaf pine, which I always thought was like the biggest one in our area that needed fire. And again, what are we doing? We're potentially ruining an entire species because we don't want our agriculture, our, our houses in the mountains or wherever to be burnt down. It's our lack of understanding of all these natural naturally occurring processes mm-hmm. and we talk a lot about fire in our episode the fire people um so check that out we talk uh, in more depth about some of this stuff but uh also climate change you know as we're pumping all these uh chemicals and and changing the climate of the earth it's creating droughts in some places like australia recently like out west in the united states um where fires are becoming more frequent and Arguably, these are not the healthy kind of fires. They're uh, really raging. They're violent fires. They're not the, Im- the the balanced fires that I would say we used to have more often. So we're starting to move into human-caused disturbance. We got blowdowns. We got beaver. We got fire. Now blights, diseases. Now there's always been diseases, and they're part of nature's balancing system. The occasional disease. Um, But ever since humans started impacting the forest so much, this has increased big time. And a big part of that is this globalization. People are meant to be connected to a place. We're meant to move. You know, like 
maybe be semi-migratory. Occasionally, there's an exceptional explorer that goes further. This is all healthy. But when you have an overpopulated culture, mass movements of people who feel entitled to every spot on the globe, and then an economy that gives them more incentive to not only travel anywhere they want to, whether they're welcome there or not, whether they're bringing diseases there or not, but also to go there and exploit the land for economic purposes, you've got a lot of trouble coming from that. The climate change for one, but also the blights. Here in these mountains in North Carolina, one of the most famous blights that that really altered the landscape was the chestnut blight. And this disease, a lot of these diseases are brought over in the form of uh, moth larvae, things that just totally defoliate the landscape. Wherever they came from, they had found a balance. There was nothing bad about these species. But they got brought over to a new area that had not evolved to accommodate these species. And they caused a huge disruption. So the chestnut, we're in what's called an oak hickory forest now. But not so long ago, a little over 100 years ago, it was an oak chestnut forest. Chestnuts were one of the main foods of the indigenous people who lived here, as well as deer, all kinds of creatures. A lot of them adapted. A lot of them... You know, as the hickories took the place, as all the chestnuts started dying, and we still have chestnuts here. They just lost their place in the, the dominance, the canopy. The hickories moved in and filled the niche, which is another beautiful thing that nature does. We have all these species that prefer the same thing. So there's a little bit of competition there, but it's also cooperation, because if trouble befalls one, the niche is filled. So it's for the greater good. And that's another thing I love about ecology. What seems like a really bad thing, um, you know, like, what am I trying to say? Like the competition, the survival of the fittest. What you often find when you take a step back and look at the bigger picture is a greater good comes of it. The fast deer, the healthy deer that challenge the wolves create faster and stronger wolves. And the faster and stronger wolves that thin the herd select for the stronger deer. So it's a beautiful cycle. This globalization, as we're bringing all this this stuff around, um, really spreads all these diseases, and we've got a lot of uh, imbalances. There's also the... uh, We've run into a couple that we've read about up here in the mountains. Do you remember any? Oh, I don't remember. There was like a hemlock... I think it's called an adelgid. Adelgid? I never know how to say that. But hemlocks are currently um, being threatened by... A blight like this. And this is really exacerbated, even though humans didn't invent it, but we have greatly exaggerated it, mainly through our globalization, through our entitlement to be anywhere on the planet and to cut wood, to really take more than we need and to ship it to places. This is a big cause, like bringing firewood, even for instance, you know, buying it at one place on the planet and taking it to another. So our fifth disturbance is pasturing. Long time ago, we started keeping animals against their will as captives. And because we kept them in unnatural environments, captive, um, in close quarters that they usually wouldn't be when they, when they would otherwise migrate or travel, and then we lived right beside them, so many of the viruses they carried that, again, were imbalanced. They didn't wipe out entire species normally. They started mutating. 
and becoming all of the, they unleashed all of these horrible things that we hear about. The black plague, the uh, smallpox, uh, chickenpox, measles. All these are mutated viruses that came from captive animals. That's why the Europeans who kept captive animals brought them to the American continent and not the other way around because the indigenous people, for the most part, did not keep captive animals. So they did not have these mutant viruses as part of their evolution. Um, this pasturing, another bad effect of these animals being captive is they graze. This devastated the landscape in the uh, 1700s and, and really in the 1800s um, around New England, bringing sheep. Tom Wessels talks a lot about this. The sheep were a big source of a, a problem. And then now out west, we've got the pasturing of cattle. They are greatly changing the landscape. They eat different things than the animals that evolved there. Um, we keep them in different numbers. We keep them in areas where they don't get to travel naturally, so they decimate landscapes. Oh, and I think we were just listening to one of Derek Jensen's podcasts, and he had a guest on that was talking about, we're really not even eating these cattle that are decimating the landscape. It's like some program that the government, you know, would rather have people pasturing on the land than, I guess, have to police it or do something like, you know, manage it themselves. So it's, it just is really messed up. Yeah, and a lot of these ranchers out west, they're actually grazing their cattle on public lands. So it's not even like, I mean, hell, private land ownership, that has its own set of problems and philosophies behind it. But a lot of these cattle are being um, grazed and, and they feed on what's considered public lands, everybody's lands. And they do all kinds of horrible things to anything they think is competition, even buffalo. You know, they blame buffalo for giving their cattle diseases. If anything, the opposite is true. Um, and the coyotes, my God, the things they do to coyote pups, um, the cyanide bombs, the shooting, the just disgusting things. Like, even if you were, were going to kill an animal, they do it in the worst ways, which killing the animal for just because you think it competes with your economic livelihood is fucked up enough. Um, so, yeah, these ranchers, this pasturing has a devastating impact on the land, but it's one of the, the the impacts of disturbance. So, in places that there has been pasturing and the blights, once they heal, once they leave, once they've done their thing, we see this disturbance also have in the long term, sometimes the very long term, positive side effects as the succession, as nature fills in to heal. And finally, logging. Now, as long as there's been civilization, civilization is based on the need of destroying forests, not living with forests. As Derek Jensen so eloquently talks about in his book, Strangely Like War, and I love that he pointed this out, one of the oldest stories in our culture is the story of Gilgamesh. And in this story, Gilgamesh, our hero, destroys a forest. He actually destroys the spirit of the forest. It's like an enemy, an opponent. And because he destroys the spirit, this guardian of the forest, he cuts down an entire forest to make a city. Derek Jensen talks about the cedars of Lebanon, that the cradle of our civilization, you know, out in the Middle East. It wasn't always a desert. Those were lush forests at one time. 
we still talk about the cedars of Lebanon. That That is a term that most of us, you know, it sounds familiar. There's no cedars out there anymore. It's describing a forest that died because we cut it down. And another great Jensen quote is, forest precede us, deserts dog our heels. So this logging, even when we haven't completely destroyed the forest yet, maybe the first logging, it creates a huge disturbance. And you might say, well, what about agriculture? Well, one of the first things you do to create a farm field is to log, to get rid of the forest, to get rid of the trees. So logging is what makes way for our cities, for our roads, for our parks, for our agriculture, even for our organic gardens. Logging. It's thought by some now that a forest can take logging once, maybe twice, but it's getting debatable whether it could happen three times. So, for instance, here in North Carolina, finding a virgin forest, like, you have to really, like, go to a specific spot, and apparently there is a, like, one spot, a virgin forest left somewhere in these North Carolina mountains. But most things are either... um, First growth, or second growth, or third growth. I'm not sure if I said that right. But they've been logged once or twice. So most of the forests we're familiar with have already been cut down. They're not the forests that were here when the colonists got here, when the pilgrims got here. They're recovering. And in the recovery, nature in all her beauty, even when she has a devastating wound, she is so good at healing. She just floods right in with recovering, healing energy. And what that looks like to us is plants, is like unique plants that are often really good medicines, are good to eat, have all kinds of gifts for us as side effects, or maybe as part of the greater ecology that we belong in as well. Um, That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Last night we stayed at this overlook on the Blue Ridge Parkway, and the description, there was like a little sign there, and it was talking about this lost cove or uh, an Appalachian cove forest, and how... Uh, so many hikers and, and naturalists and just in nature enthusiasts, they come to these coves to see all the diversity of this small part of the mountains. And it also said that the loggers had left this area alone. And you might think, are, you know, oh great, the loggers were so nice to leave this little patch of forest, but I don't know. I think I'm putting two and two together here. I'm reading in the uh, Peterson Field Guide that there are so many different tree species in these very uh, diverse coves that maybe the loggers just didn't find it economically viable to go in there and take out like six trees that they wanted because there's so many different trees growing in one small space. So that kind of, that was just the other side of that uh, comment on the sign found interesting. Yeah, and that is our sixth uh, main disturbance. So when you go to the forest, consider that, that the substrate and the topography are help determining what kind of forest you're in. And within that forest, you know, when you see these, like you come to a meadow, for instance, or a field or a roadside, if you start looking, you'll notice that there are different kinds of plants and trees and animals and a whole different thing going on. So maybe uh, practice considering one of those six signs of disturbance. And reading the forested landscape, great guide on how to read that shit. Blowdowns, beaver, fire, blights, pasturing, and logging. Um, Now, all of these begin 
stages of succession towards a climax forest. A climax forest in Peterson's Field Guide to Eastern Forest is a good guide of this um, in the United States, the eastern part of the United States. If you're somewhere else in the world, um, hopefully there's some kind of book out there written that's similar to this, but see if you can find a map of your bioregions. Like I said, we're in an oak hickory forest. What that helps me do is look around and notice um, we're kind of on the cusp of an Appalachian forest and oak hickory. So let me describe the oak hickory because I'm more familiar with it. That's the, the main forest around Durham. If I look up and I see oaks and hickories, I know that this is a healing climax forest. Not climax yet. And climax is a debatable concept too because some people say the forest is always changing. There's no set climax forest. But I still find it useful because even though acknowledging that this is all changing, there's an exception to everything. Everything is adaptable. Everything's in fluid motion. Still, it gives you a good guide. Because if I'm looking around and I see, all right, oaks and hickories over me and I keep walking through the woods and suddenly there's pines, one of those six disturbances has happened. And suddenly there's a whole bunch of cedars. One of those six disturbances has happened. A big field. Um, anything that's not the oak hickory forest. And then, being a tracker, being a detective, you know, this is the our native literacy series, so it's all about how to interpret, how to read what we're seeing and understand it. Um, I'm going to track that. I'm going to look and notice that, oh, there's a reason why this is not the oak hickory forest that I am otherwise in in this bioregion. So let me consider if I can find clues to support one of those six signs of disturbance. Again, reading the forested landscape, really good primer on that. Um, now, the stages of succession. Like, we are fans of The Walking Dead. And uh, <laughs> there was that episode, I think it was season three, where they meet, like, uh, Herschel and the, the hot farmer's daughter, Maggie. And uh, in that season, at some point, she says, we all got jobs to do. And Teresa and I occasionally say that, like, well, we all got jobs to do. And this is also a great concept for ecology because everything out there, it's not just out there by accident. It's not just out there holding medicine, waiting for some human to come and some herbalist to pick it. It's not out there just holding food, waiting for some forager to pick it or some wild tender. It's already doing something for the forest aside from people. And that is how you begin to understand succession. So let's say we got a fire. It just wiped out the whole area, you know, like the fire just came through. Maybe there's a few big trees that survived, but for the most part, it burned it down to the ground. There's ash, there's char. What we find first growing back are what's called pioneer plants. And, you know, with plants, like, let's consider the, the plant life strategies. Mostly there are annuals who fulfill their whole life cycle in one year. They pop up in the spring, they flower, they go to fruit or seed, they drop the seed, and then they die. The next year, whatever seed survived, they do that. We got biennials, like mullins, like, uh, shit, what's another biennial off of the top? I'm not sure that's a biennial. I got a brain fart right now, but there's plenty of biennials. But one of the, the signs of a biennial is the first year, it'll form what's called a basal rosette. All the leaves will look like it come out. they come out in a bunch from the ground. The second year, oh, wild carrot, that's another one. The second year, it'll send up a stalk, usually a tall stalk that'll flower. And then after these two years, it'll die. 
Um, I used to love taking like people to this one area that I knew called Halt Reservoir, and there was mullein growing there. And for some reason, on one side of the hill, you'd see all these big, fuzzy, beautiful leaves and basil rosettes. On the other side of the hill, you'd see all those fuzzy leaves with big stalks. And the next year, it would trade. <laughs> so the basil rosettes, the very next year, they'd send up the stalks. And on the side that had the stalks, they would all die. So the new basil rosettes would be up. And it was a beautiful uh, demonstration, a beautiful... Uh, God, what am I? Words. Words are hard. A beautiful example of biennials. And you get your perennials, like most trees. Uh, plants that live more than two years, basically. Some of them live hundreds of years. So when you have that cleared area, fire came through, you've got the pioneer plants. They're tough and they're quick growing. Um, some of them are annuals, but not all of them. Like, for instance, I mentioned walking through an oak hickory forest. Here's a pine tree. That is a pioneer plant. They grow really fast. So are red cedars in our area. So look for the plants that are really tough and they're fast growing. And um, they fill in. They start the process of enriching the soil, of turning the sun's energy into nutrients, of encouraging animals who disperse seeds and poop and also nourish the soil and who die and nourish the soil. They quickly fill in that niche, that gap, and start the whole process over again. Start the healing. <coughs> Eventually to be overshaded and outcompeted by the original inhabitants, the climax forest reinstating itself, in our example, oaks and hickories as the canopy. And that, by the way, is done without any human intervention. Nature's doing that, all of that. Yeah, we actually ran into a word. I think it's called proforestation. I may be wrong about that. We learned that from uh, Derek Jensen's Resistance Radio podcast, one of the people he was interviewing. But... I didn't know the word for it, but I was already of the philosophy that I believe nature heals herself. Now, I'm more and more kind of coming around to wild tending because we have to interact with the land. We're meant to. There's a niche for us. Um, and wild tending sounds like a really good way to do it. But I don't believe the forest is dependent on us to heal. Nature is beautiful at this, is extraordinary at this all by herself. And I believe one of the best things we can do to a forest, unless we are living off the land in a good way is to leave it alone. The forest will heal itself. Um, Pro-forestry. So we got those tough, quick-growing plants, and we also got among these pioneer plants, warrior plants. And I think a lot of these plants are both, like thistle, for instance. But warrior plants have armor. They have spikes. They have poison. And not only do they come in and fill in the gap, and quickly try to reestablish plants that are tough and can grow there and start the forest healing, they protect it. You'll find these plants often along the edge, on roadsides, when you first walk into a forest, or anywhere that disturbance is really frequent. For instance, um, places where humans go a lot, I, that's where I see poison ivy. That's where I see even blackberry that you know, gives these great fruits and encourages animals to come. Greenbrier, um, thistle. Things that poke me, things that sting me, things that... Stinging nettle. Um, you don't find stinging nettle in the middle of the forest as much as you do in fields, in places that are disturbed. Even swamps. You know, it's not all protection from man-made things. Even in swamps that often get washed out and have natural causes, you'll find warrior plants that strive to reestablish the healing, that protect the forest. 
You might say the Pioneer plants as they're getting established, among others. And, boy, there's so much to talk about with ecology. Our time's getting short. We've got about 10 minutes. So um, the main plant concerns, if you want to kind of get into a plant's head, so to speak, and understand what a plant likes, how to kind of maybe help it. And like I said, I don't think the plant's dependent on our health, but I think there are times that we can uh, give a positive gesture because plants do so much to, for us. We can do things for the plants. Plants, to my understanding, think, and I say think in quotes, but live, think, experience in terms of light and moisture. Those are the two big factors. Some plants prefer more shade. Some like lots of sun. And among these plants, some prefer lots of water, even growing in the water, and some like it really dry. They would drown. So practice that as you're encountering these plants. You know, maybe you're encountering pioneer and warrior plants in a disturbed place, and you're already thinking about one what of the six signs of disturbance you're encountering, then ask yourself, what are these plants like? Is this a plant that loves basking in the sun, just opens its leaves like you'd open your arms and, ah, man, let that sun in. And maybe those same plants like it wet because there are sunny, wet places and they just drink light and moisture. Um, and now, you know, let's move on from the disturbances and what you know, those three factors, the topography, the substrate, and the disturbance. So now you've got the forest. Another way to look at a forest as you're going in to understand what's happening out there is in layers, which is called stratification. Um, a healthy forest, and of course, this is all of these are generalizations. Like I know people, I mean, we've had people contact us from Australia, and I, I'm not going to pretend to know crap about how ecology works in Australia. But... I know that that's, this is the way it works here, and I suspect a lot of this is translatable, but find out for yourself. Find a good guide. The stratification in a healthy forest often has an herb layer. That's the stuff growing right on the ground, often lots of annuals, um, biennials. Then a shrub layer. You know, you got your, like right here, I'm looking around, we got rhododendron. Rhododendron is the dominant shrub here. Then you got understory trees, trees that don't typically make it into the canopy. But they're trees nonetheless. They're taller than the shrubs. And finally, you got the canopy in the very top. If you go into a landscape like an oak hickory forest and one of these uh, stratifications, one of these layers is missing, that's a sign of disturbance in itself. A healthy forest is stratified, has those different layers. And each one of these layers nourishes different creatures. And it's beautiful in the spring because seasonal ecology, you'll see... The plants on the ground start coming out first, turning green, the flowers, the wildflowers. All the things in the canopy, it still looks like winter. Nothing's happening there yet. So everything takes its turn. This is the other part of, uh, like, you know, the competition that happens out there. This is the cooperation as well. Things need to work together to survive. And this pulse, this heartbeat of life, to me, the, the, the heartbeat of the earth is one pump every year. It's a slow heartbeat, and it comes from the ground. It comes from the earth. So that pump rises up the herb layer, and you got most of the insect-pollinated plants. Rises up into the shrub layer. you got mostly insect-pollinated flowers, and then starts going up into the trees. And now you're getting more and more wind-pollinated things. Because when you think about it, if your strategy for your flower is to be spread by the wind instead of insects, you want to be as high as possible. 
You want that to be carried by the wind as far as possible. It wouldn't make sense to have a wind-pollinated herb on the ground. And then in the autumn, it reverses. That heartbeat finalizes as it goes back into the earth for the winter. It's this beautiful heartbeat of our mother that we are dependent on. Um, so the stratification, and you can also see a really neat thing when you pay attention when you enter a forest. The denseness, the warrior plants form a sort of skin of the forest, a sort of shell. So if you could see a forest, and you can see this where there's a new housing development, where a forest has recently been cut into and buildings are being built, what you will see is you can see far into the forest. There's all these tall, naked trees. It looks kind of strange. If that's left alone enough, it'll fill in. You won't be able to see into the forest. But if you walk through that skin or that shell of dense shrubbery, you kind of have to fight your way through if there's not a trail, suddenly the forest is open again. There's a protective shell of green, a wall of green, a a type of skin. And just like our skin, it covers the forest. It works together, even though it's composed of different species, and protects it. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, And, of course, we all learned about the food pyramid, you know, in high school. But, you know, this food pyramid, the sun, we're all based on the sun. The sun is the only source of all energy. We are all solar-powered. We are all actually the sun itself. We're the sun that, coupled with one of the elements on the Earth, carbon. And the carbon are the building blocks to to form these solar-powered entities, machines, spirits that we call our bodies. Now, I love thinking about that, how this planet just has so much sun bathing it, showering down constantly, sun, sun, beautiful golden energy. And somehow, miraculously, these beings evolved that we call plants that can turn light into food, into biomass, and recreate. It's so taken for granted that we forget the miracle of that, the extraordinariness of that, that we are all like secondary or tertiary byproducts of these plants. And the food pyramid reminds us that there needs to be so much solar energy hitting the earth to feed a lesser amount of plants. There's so much solar energy that, as I said, plants develop strategies to protect themselves from the sun. They get too much of it. And then there evolve these animals we call herbivores that eat the plants. And so there needs to be like so many types of plants to feed one rabbit so there's less herbivores. And then up the food pyramid, you got the carnivores. I think they're called first-level carnivores that eat the rabbits. And then finally, top carnivores. You know, the carnivores that aren't eaten by anything. And for every top carnivore, there's going to be so many plants. So if I find signs as a tracker, what this means to me, if I find signs of a top carnivore, let's say, I don't know, a bald eagle, for instance, I know just by finding that, if I think ecologically, the implications of finding an eagle feather are huge. I know that there's got to be a lot of herbivores. Herbivores are among the animals as a survivalist that I might be trying to target myself for eating. Fish, rabbits, without seeing a single rabbit sign. I know they're there because the eagle is there. And then the plants, because I know rabbits eat a lot of the same things I eat. So I know without seeing, without exploring much of the landscape from one eagle feather that there's going to be a lot of plants. Maybe they're going to be plants I can use. There's going to be a lot of herbivores. 
probably some herbivores that I might be interested in. So the implications of that food pyramid are really useful. You know, when I learned it in high school, I just kind of rolled my eyes like, yeah, whatever. I thought it was one of those kind of abstract, boring things, and it was the way they taught it. But man, if you teach it right and think about it right, it's profound and it's beautiful. And of course, the food chains that work through that, you know, all the uh, all the specific links between food and herbivore and predator, etc. Um, and I guess... Yeah, I guess we're going to wind this up because we're about the, at the end of our time. But one thing I want to talk about to, to wind this up, and there's a lot more to talk about with ecology, is biomass. Um, as we're reading Wild Tending, um, I'm thinking more about biomass lately because one of the things I was taught when I started studying plants, especially medicinal plants, is it's respectful. Like, I just used jewelweed this morning. I rubbed it on my skin because I thought I might have touched some poison ivy. I was taught to return the plant's parts that you don't use to the same place. So, in other words, to that tribe of jewelweed. And that is a sign of respect. And what I've come to understand is how delicate of a balance biomass is. So, for instance, here is a patch of jewelweed in front of me just pretending. Here's the jewelweed patch. I take one of those plants, I squish up the juice and rub it on my skin. That juice represents some biomass. I am taking it away from that patch. So when these plants all go to seed, all die, I've, I've taken a little bit of the nourishment away. Now, of course, there's such a trade-off in this interconnection connected thing that there's other animals that have pooped there that have added biomass. So even though I've taken some away, it still might have a surplus from other factors. But by bringing what's left back to that, that patch, I return even a little bit. And that's important because it goes back to that biomass. It turns into nutrition. And, um, you know, then I go and, like, we poop in the woods often, so... We create a surplus over here. And so when you think in terms of that biomass, agriculture, you start understanding why it depletes the soil. Because when you've got all these plants and they're all getting shipped out to other places, you know, and people are eating these plants, that's biomass that's not being returned to the soil. A lot of it. Not to mention all the biomass that was stripped and killed to make way for these plants that we are favoring. And then... The only way to replenish the soil is to steal it from another place. So it's not just like, oh, compost is just purely good. Compost comes from all these plants that we're eating that have been stolen from another place. And they're going back into the garden. Unless your garden is purely, you're just turning it over. And even that, you're still eating it. You're taking it away. So biomass is a huge factor when you're thinking in terms of this uh, ecology. And... uh. I don't know, that felt kind of scattered. I'm trying to, uh, like, share some tips that have helped me see the forest as a whole. Is there anything that you, any thoughts, Teresa, or any uh, thing you feel about, like, what we've gone over as we kind of wind up this episode? I think it was a huge undertaking to bring all that information together for an hour-long podcast. And I know you got so much more to share, but that was that was really good. That was a really good, like, get your feet wet about ecology and hopefully you know just like how I'm reading books and then looking around and looking in more detail and being that detective and asking why it comes alive 
more alive than just reading all these charts and numbers and everything that a lot of ecology books, like you said, focus on. Yeah. And our, our listener uh, write-in for this episode, we have Richard from Huntington, New York. And he writes to us and he says, any connection with Oregon's Old Crow Farm Commune? And uh, no, I've never heard of it. We have no connection with Oregon's Old Crow Farm Commune, but there's a... Uh, a uh, oh, those damn words again. But here's a little nod to Oregon's Old Crow Farm Commune. We don't know anything about you, but uh, we're getting your name out there. So, you know, if anybody knows anything about that, or especially if you live there, yeah, definitely hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, if anybody has, if anyone has any uh, information, like firsthand experience living in a communal environment, I'd like to know about that. Yeah. And if you have any questions or comments, you know, like, Maybe you wanted something different from an ecology podcast. I would love to hear that. I would love to hear any questions that I haven't answered and any stories yourself about anything, um, anything you find interesting. So check out our Facebook page. We're always posting, you know, stuff there that uh, you may find inspiring or offensive. Either way, it gets you stirred up, and that's what we're after. Um, Check out our website, www.escapingsociety.weebly.com. We've added a donate button. If you are able and moved to make a donation, we really appreciate it. Um, But I would encourage anybody, if you listen to this podcast and find any benefit whatsoever, um, maybe you're strapped for cash, send us a comment. I really love to hear from people, so that would be a way to support us that we really appreciate. And we are also always looking for different locations. So if you know of any place that we might be able to park our van that's like temperate and beautiful and has any uh, appeal or like something we should connect with, we love hearing about that stuff. And also any gigs. We're always on the the lookout for like short-term jobs, house sitting, pet sitting, nature programs, anything like that. So if you're aware of anything like that, please share that with us. And I think that about does it for us. Is there... Yeah, I guess that uh, does it for Teresa, too. Thanks for listening. Yeah, and uh, thank you, Mother Earth. You know, like, one thing I wanted to express with this episode, by calling it Mother, is my deep reverence and love for this planet. Um, I wish you could see where we are right now. Oh, my God. It's so easy to, to remember why why we're out here. So, uh, till next time, get outside and... Uh, Check out what's out there. See if you can read it. Increase your native literacy. Bye.
soul. Thank, Thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it because we'll be gone over that next horizon. We ain't got no ass.